Hi, I'm Rob Shear. I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, author of the book, A Forever Family, but most importantly, I'm the father of five children. Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a radio host and now the director of communications for Comfort Cases. Our country's foster care system is shattered, and the podcast is about how we, as a community, can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast. Today we are talking to Sasha Martin. Sasha spent time in foster care. She considers herself a survivor, and she's the author of the book Life from Scratch, a memoir of food, family, and forgiveness, which was published by National Geographic in 2015. She shares her journey through foster care and into parenthood, and as a new mom, she cooks meals from every country in the world, in part to gain a sense of belonging after a childhood in turmoil. Thank you for being with us today, Sasha. Thank you for having me on the show. Good to be here. So I'm pretty excited the fact that you, um, you know, I'm a dad of five kids, and um, my kids are really, some of them are really picky eaters. Um, I feel bad <laughs> for my husband when it comes to dinner time, but I love the fact that you um, cook dishes from all over the world, and it gives you a sense of home and belonging. Mm-hmm. So this is something that started about into my daughter's life. I was probably dealing with a little bit of sort of mild postpartum and just trying to figure out my place as a mother, and I wasn't really cooking. I wasn't sleeping for sure. My husband for Christmas, had given me all these spice jars because he went to cooking school and has always got making her thesis on artisan bread in France. So it's been a passion of mine um, all throughout my life. And he bought these spice jars. And then in February, after Christmas, they were still empty. And one night I was thinking about them and looking at them and, and trying to figure out why am I not cooking? Why do I feel sad? And I, I, began to think about my childhood and how um, so much of what was unsettled for me, um, I tried to work out through cooking. And I think that moment, um, looking at those spice jars, is when I realized I want to create some new memories. I need to kind of reclaim cooking and motherhood and all of it. Of course, at the time, it wasn't clear in my head what was happening. I just thought, oh, I need a project. I need something. And so I, I just had this wild hair of, of filling these jars with new spices, new memories, and what if I cooked a meal from every country in the world? And, you know, this was around the Julian Juliet uh, days. And so um, I'm sure that was a factor in my inspiration. Um, but so then I, so I asked my husband and he said, yeah, okay, let's let's go for it. And it became a thing I did week after week for almost four years while my daughter was growing up. Um, and what I discovered while working on the project and writing the book was it was actually a way to find myself as a mother. It was a walking meditation, of course, every week thinking about the food, having a focus to work on, and then sharing it with my daughter. It was like I was training myself in a way to just just become the mother I didn't have or didn't know, you know? 
yeah, I didn't I, have the model for. I think that's the way it, it is for so much, uh, so many of us who, you know, didn't grow up with, you know, the quote unquote traditional family. Um, was your husband in foster care? No, he wasn't. In fact, he had sort of the, the, what you would think of as the leave it to beaver set up. I mean, just his parents lived on the same land that they grew up on 30 years, married, uh, you know, just nobody had fights. It seemed like, <laughs> you know, just like all very happy and very sweet and they are very sweet people. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely a contrast to what I grew up with. So tell us some of your story. I mean, at what age were you when you went into foster care? So I was really small the first time social services got involved, actually. Um, and that's actually the scene I went back and forth that I decided to open my book with, which is um, me. I actually burned my fingerprints off on a couple of fingers. Um, I was learning to toddle. And uh, my mother was broiling hamburgers and turned her back to grab a pot holder or something. And I fell with my hands onto that open broiler and got third degree burns. And um, they, of course, wanted to know why that happened. And my mother, um, which I did not name in the book, but, you know, I wanted the reader to just make their own assessment of her, but she had some challenges. And when she's in a crisis, she doesn't respond the way you would expect her to, so she escalates. And it becomes bigger and bigger. And so they just this little toddler is when they took away from her the first time. And then it was kind of super on the radar. This is in Boston. Uh, well, actually, that was Cape Cod and then later Boston. And once we were on their radar, we were just in and out all the time um, until I was 10. Do you think that the system and failed her? I do. I have, so this is interesting question. I've thought a lot about it. I think she needed mental health services for sure. Um, I think she needed support. She was a single mother and she was also, you know, we were on food stamps and she was, you know, two young kids. She was trying to support us, but then also take care of us. And so some of those things were provided to her. We had court ordered um, therapy that she went to and we went to. But at the end of the day, um, there was nobody in our city that was able to be a, you know, somebody for her to lean on. So the system needs to be improved. And I do think I'm at school in the middle of a test in first grade and the social worker telling me that they were making me see my mom and they, they didn't. They took me to a foster home and um, the homes I happened to go in with my brother, there was a lot of abuse. And um, the thing about my mom <laughs> is she put a lot of effort into getting those foster parents off the list. Um, she would write up these, on an old typewriter, she would write up these 50-page reports of what we would tell her and how, you know, I forget what it's called, filing in 91A or something, 51A, I don't remember, but. Um, one of the homes had guns on the mantle. One of them threw apples at me when I would ask for food. And um, and she did. She got them. She did so, so in a strange way. She was like a savant. She was, she was helping the system while it was also failing her. <laughs> and she couldn't seem to keep us. Um, but 
then when I was 10, it was just too much, too much in and out. And so she started to ask if there was anybody who could take us permanently. And so um, that was the big transition for us. So did you end up getting adopted to a forever family? No, um, I didn't. So this is, this is um, an interesting thing. So she asked all her relatives. And um, they, for various reasons, said no. It was they told me in confidence later that the reasons were they didn't want to deal with her instability. You know that we were nice kids, but sorry, we had our own kids to deal with, things like that. Um, but she did have a set of friends from when she was growing up that decided to take us in, and I was, I guess, ten and a half years old. My brother was twelve. And they agreed to take us as our legal guardians. And I spent the rest of my high school years with them. Now, it's not really a happy ending um, because of many things. What happened was, while I was in their care, um, my brother, who was, again, a couple years older, who was just really struggling, and he would, you know, try to, he would have my mom's number memorized. He would try to call her on the fly and she would tell him, you need to focus on your family. And he just got more and more hurt and more and more traumatized by all the separation. And, and we actually moved out of state with his family to Georgia, away from Massachusetts. And he ended up taking his life when he was, uh, I guess, 14. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry about that. That's oh. awful. But yeah. Wow. Oh yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible, and he, you know, he was in a coma for a month, and my mom did come down at that time to um, to see him, but he, you know, he, just, he didn't make it, um, and so what happened was I went from this really quiet, straight-A, like, super pleaser child to once he died, um, I really started acting out. He was the one that was acting out, and then after he passed, they actually moved to Europe and they took me with them. And I'm talking like two months, two months after we died, we moved. And um, I grew up in Paris and Luxembourg. And this is all stuff in my book, by the way, like kind of context for the interest in international cooking is having this immense grief and loneliness and separation from family and being in Europe and then having this distraction of the food or whatever. But while I was there, I also had the distraction of drinking and, and drugs and boys and all of it. And I really, really um, gave my guardians <laughs> a big, big challenge. And by the end of it, they, um, they gave me sort of financially and um, sort of security of like a roof over my head and, and, money to go to camp and things like that but um and then when I got into college they helped me with that but when I called to see for Thanksgiving um what everybody was doing they said well you're 19 now we think you don't need to come you know come stay with us anymore and I was shocked um but I had been you know I had been a really big big challenge for them and I think the only thing that could have really helped us get through that, that like my acting out and my grief and their inability to deal with it, it was communication. It all came down to we never talked. 
we didn't get therapy. Um, it was just this elephant in the room, this, this horrible grief. And um, it just, I think they wanted to just be done with it. So have you had any, so, re- have you had any relationship with them since then? Not really. Um, you know, they, um, they have, they have three daughters and their youngest daughter is the person I'm really a little bit still in touch with. And she read a draft of the book. I wanted, it was really important to me that somebody from the family weighed in on some of the things I wrote. And, um, you know, and, and she, she she was good. She gave me context for what her family was dealing with and why certain things um, were hard uh, for her mother. You know what she grew up with. I think we talk about the cycle of of how we act in family. And and her mom had a really hard time as a child as well. And I didn't know that. You know, um, and so she wasn't able to cope with um, my brother's loss for her own reasons of having lost somebody in a similar way, um, her own mother. And so I think we were all lost. And, um, and so, you know, I did, their oldest daughter invited me to her wedding. It was very uncomfortable. I could tell um, they really didn't, they, they wanted to move on with their lives. If that is that sound, you know, it is. Um, I think they just, it was too painful of, of a period and they, and they just I mean I know exactly I know. how it is I know exactly how it is I mean I I literally you would I would think that you're my sister I mean I literally same exact thing lived with the family from the time I was 12 until I was 18 I was this and by the way, I was this perfect kid. I was the kid who got good <laughs> grades. I was the kid who went to church every Sunday. I was the kid who said yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And then when I turned 18, um, it, it was like, okay, I'm of age now, and I no longer need them. And the sad part is, for several years, I had no contact with them at all. And then I found them in my 20s, and I got really close to my foster mom. And, um, I mean, super, super close. And it wasn't until my book came out two years ago that, um, it all went south. Everything, you know, and I haven't spoken to my mom now, gosh, but almost three years. And she hasn't spoken to my kids. She hasn't spoken to my husband, you know. So it's really hard. I mean, you feel like sometimes you're out there on an island and nobody's there with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, of course, the PTSD of like expecting all relationships to fail a little bit, right? Yeah, no, I totally um, agree. I, I I know this is a little personal question, but I want to know: Are you do you seek therapy still? So I have a bad habit of doing it on my own until I have a crisis that I can't handle. That something that happens that's just too big, and then I find somebody which is kind of, you know, what was modeled for me as a kid is, you know, when the court ordered it, I got therapy. When my brother died, uh, instead of talking about it, they put me in a therapist's office and um, and just kind of like in these segments. So I I haven't, in, in about two years, I haven't been anywhere. But I do, I you know, it's expensive and, and it's hard to, to take that time, but it is 
so helpful whenever I do do it, especially oh art therapy. You got to do it. You got to do it. I'm telling you something. I'm I'm fifty going to be fifty four years old in a couple of weeks, and therapy is so many reasons why I've been able to make it out of that well because you know realizing the baggage that we all come with being part of the system being part of people that look at us like we're disposable and I mean it's let me tell you something if you have ever done anything for yourself and for your daughter um you got to go to therapy because it it does get brighter on the other side. I mean, as hard as some days may seem, it gets brighter on the other side. What made you decide to write a book? Well, you know, so you kind of love the story. I mean, it was a very, um, it was kind of like this wonderful, it feel like somebody said, I believe in luck, the harder it works, the more I get. And, and so I say it was lucky, but I worked hard for that luck. <laughs> So I blogged about the cooking adventure, and one day I sent an email to Rick Steves saying I enjoyed something on the show, and the producer wrote back and had seen my signature and said, oh, why don't you talk about your quest on the the radio show? And so I did, and this woman in Texas heard it, and she emailed her friend or her sister, who's an agent, and was like, I'm going to talk to this girl. I think she has a story. So I actually didn't seek it out. I have a lot of insecurities, and I probably never would have. Um, I just, you know, the blog was something I could do. It was within my own grasp. Um, But So this lady um, emailed me, and then we had a two-hour phone call, and and she asked me about why I was doing it. And and she said, you know, I think you should put together a book proposal. And so I did, and the book proposal was all about the misadventures of cooking the world. I definitely think Julie and Julia, here's what I try, my picky husband, everything that went wrong, and the baby spitting it out, and isn't it so fun? And so um, she shopped that around to the publishers and had me come up to New York to meet them. And I went to one particular publisher, and they had several people around the big table, and they were all asking me questions, and they all, all started with, you know, why, why cook the world? What, and I, well, I was interested in international food. Why? Well, I was in Europe when I was a kid. Why were you in Europe? Well, my guardians took me. Well, you had guardians? Why did you have guardians? Well, I was in and out of foster care. Wait, you were in and out of foster care. And you could see this questioning going deeper and deeper into personal story. And I kept trying to tell them about cooking the world. And well, let me tell you about these recipes. This is really what I'm trying to write about. And later that day, my agent called me and said, Sasha, they don't want your book about in the world. They want to, they want your childhood story. This is what their real book is, they said. And they asked if you would rewrite your proposal. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not telling my life story. And I'm too young, number one. And I don't even know what I would say. I don't even know what I think about my childhood at this point. And she said, okay, fine. So we kept going to these different meetings and she laughed them all. She had forgotten about National Geographic and then she said, oh my gosh, I have a connection of um, an editor there that we should talk to. She used to work at women's magazines and she's really um, trying to help National Geographic broaden the types of books they publish. She might be interested in your story. So we got on Skype because they were in D.C. and I was in New York and it was like instant connection 
they understood what I was trying to do by cooking the world. They didn't ask, you know, all these questions. They were just so happy for a book that encouraged world peace through cooking and um, you know, geography. And it was just great. So I signed with them and I thought, ha, thinking about that other publisher that wanted me to work on this really hard, sad story. And um, about, I don't know, a month later, we got to work on my memoir and my editor started asking the same darn questions <laughs> as that other publisher you know well why and I started to tell her and she's like huh okay we'll put it down start you know give us some context to your story we can't you know I don't believe for one second obsessively week after week for four years cooking I mean it was like 750 recipes for all almost 200 countries she's like that is not normal and there is something else driving you besides a picky husband and a new baby. You need to figure out what that is. And I got really scared and I realized that I was going to have to go a little deeper. And so I started and I, I couldn't explain any of it without, you know how it is when you have a complicated life story. It's like, well, there's this player and there's this thing that happened. And, and if I don't explain it, it won't make sense. And so 50 pages later... <laughs> I had all this stuff and I sent it to her and she called me and she was kind of freaking out and she said, this is what you have to write. This is your story. This is your why. This is what was driving you. You're, you know, this hunger for belonging, this hunger for peace and um, trying to figure out motherhood. And she said, you better keep going. And she, and she was freaking out because it's not a national geographic story for sure um, to talk about you know, the intimate details of foster care. It's just not what they'd normally publish. And so she said, let me deal with marketing. Let me deal with my boss. This is a way more important story. And so, you know, I kept going and we kind of on the fly, it was like, talk about therapy. It was pouring my heart out on the page in a totally unplanned way. I only had a year to write it. And, um, and then by the time I got through six to nine months of that year, I had like the most um, sort of angsty garbage written. <laughs> I had to figure out a way to turn it into a story because I was just pouring my heart out trying to even find what is the story here it was because it was unplanned. And, um, and so I just, I just kept going and, and that's where it all came together where I figured out what I was even doing with the quest to cook every country. And, you know, my mother was the one um, for for all those tough times we had and all those times in and out of home, um, she used food to keep us from being sad, from being sort of trapped by our circumstances. So she would make recipes that um, somebody might say, oh, why are you making that recipe on food stamps? Something with expensive ingredients like chocolate and marzipan and making, she made this 21 layer cake that was crepes stacked on top of each other with, again, these expensive ingredients, but it was a German tree cake and it was a way for us to see something beyond our circumstances, which were so hard. And so um, as I wrote the book, I started to see what she had taught me and, and what I had to overcome. And, and so in the end, I hope um, it, you know, for me, it was a cathartic experience writing it. And I hope it, it kind of shows a way through all that difficulty. And I think for your listeners, one thing that 
as I wrote it, as I thought about my childhood, one of the things that went so wrong is that nobody talked about anything. And that is what I would urge is to, you know, break that silence and sad things happen when kids are suffering. You know, don't let them go to their room and close their doors. Have those difficult conversations and hug them and, and talk about it. I wasn't hugged very much at all growing up. Um, there was just, in the families I was in, there, that, that wasn't part of the culture. And so there, there's, it seems like we make it seem so hard um, to deal with the difficulties of these kinds of uh, atypical childhoods, but really some of it is as simple as just communicating and hugging, um, you know, to get through it together. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's an amazing story. And and you're so right, actually. So I didn't grow up in foster care or anything. I had both my parents, but my mom passed away when I was 18. My sister was 15. My brother was 12. And I just recently, 20 years later, had a conversation with my dad about that, about how after she passed away, he feels really bad that we didn't talk about it. And he thinks that that's why we struggled so much into adulthood is because we didn't talk about it. We didn't go to therapy. It was just like, you know, one day she was there, the next day she was gone. Okay, let's get back to life. And we were all hurting, but we didn't talk about it. So, I mean, that advice is excellent for anybody really that struggles with loss, whether it's a foster care situation or not. I think that's just really, really good advice and really good insight. So thank you. No, I agree 100%. I mean, I think some of the biggest mistakes we make in the world is because of lack of communication. So listen, I am absolutely in awe by you. I have not had an opportunity to read your book, but I definitely will make sure that it is definitely on the top of my list. Um, I know writing a book was probably one of the hardest things in the world I ever did. And I actually was fortunate enough to have a writer. (laughs) Um, But I actually, you know, it was, I I will never forget it. It was, um, my husband would say there were some nights that I would be curled up in a fetal position because there's some stories that you just, you just didn't want to think about. But at the same time, I hope it heals so many people. You know, tell people, how can they get a hold of your book? Um, So you can find it anywhere books are sold. Um, My Website is SashaMartin.com. You can see a book trailer there if you want to, um, you know, have a little behind the scenes, more peek at it. But um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anything like that, or your independent bookstore. And we will put all that information and link to where people can buy the book on Amazon um, on our podcast. Um, I mean, on our podcast page at comfortcases.org slash podcast. So we always ask one question at the end of each podcast, and I'm curious to know what your answer will be. So if you could change two things about the foster care system, what would they be? Okay, so two things to me that probably would have made the biggest difference is um, continued therapy throughout my childhood. So I mentioned it was court-ordered at certain moments, but then once I went to live um, with guardians, that system fell away, right? It, it detached from me as a person. And so um, there was no longer any accountability for how I was doing. Um, and then I think, you know, a lot of the abuse I suffered in foster homes came down to um, not having oversight of the families that were taking on children. Um, I don't know if it was the time period in the 80s, but um, there was a separation between the child and the social worker where the social worker would either lie to the child about what was happening or try to 
try to, maybe they thought they were smoothing it over, but then they also didn't really listen to the child about what, uh, what problems there might be in the home. And I, and I would say very specifically, I was in a home that um, mixed needs with multiple children and, um, and, and was in a home with um, a child who had just been released from a um, mental institution who wasn't quite ready yet to be in the home with other children. And that was something that if they were going to do that, I, I would expect to have more oversight and more checking in to make sure it's going well or, or help it go well. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you right now that still happens. It still happens okay. to this day. I don't care what, I mean, you know, I was in the system back in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's sad to say that in 2020, um, we still haven't gotten that right. And we still have social workers that lie, and we still have foster parents who should not be licensed, and we still have children being put in homes that should not be placed. So I'm sorry to say that, my friend, but, you know, we haven't crossed that bridge to where that has ended. Well, and I just so appreciate that the show speaks that truth, right? Um, that we're not, I think the only way we're going to get forward and fix those problems is if we acknowledge that they exist. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we're here to do is to talk about it for people who know so that they know they're not alone and how they feel and what they see. And then for people who don't know to educate them. Um, I did have one more question because I don't think we talked about this. Do you have a relationship with your with your mom? Well, so this is another little bit of a long story, and I apologize for that. But um, I, di- I got back in touch with her when I was 19, about six months after uh, basically the end of my freshman year of college. And I have um, three older half-siblings who were raised by their father. And so we all kind of got back in touch with her. And it was, um, you know, it was difficult, but it was something, it was imperfect, but I felt like it was good. And, well, a similar, uh, similar story, actually, is that while working on the book, my mom, you know, it was bringing up a lot of things for her, um, and it became difficult. I thought things were okay, because the only complaints she really had were, oh, you put my age in there, could you take that out? And we would laugh about it, and I would take it out. But she started to act um, increasingly paranoid about things that weren't based in reality, the closer we got to my book deadline. And I didn't think much of it because I was so busy. Um, but what I'll name here that I don't name in the book is um, I'm 90% sure she has borderline personality disorder. And so she was in the process of splitting and she was becoming paranoid about her neighbors and she slowly stopped calling um, all my half-siblings. And then the day I hit my deadline, she stopped returning my call, but she would send me mail. And she seemed to be sending me all her belongings in the mail in a very alarming way. Box after box was showing up, and and I couldn't figure out what was happening, and she didn't take my calls. And then the next thing I knew, she had moved to Abu Dhabi. Um, But I didn't know that. I took weeks for somebody to um, tell me that that's where she was. And, in fact, I only found out last spring, so this was four years later, that that's where she ended up because she cut off all ties, which is very typical of BPD. Um, but the reason I got a call from the American embassy that said she had had a stroke in Abu Dhabi and was in the hospital there. And so um, we all tried again to get back in touch with her, but 
um, that mental illness is so difficult. It can be managed and um, in a really healthy way. But she, again, she needs to have somebody work with her on it, and um, she doesn't. And so um, I kind of reached a point where I tried and I tried and I tried for a couple of years, and I was becoming really unwell myself with depression and anxiety, and I started to get panic attacks and thinking I was dying of every little freckle on my arm and all these symptoms of grief were happening. And that's when I mentioned I went back to therapy to see an art therapist um, because it was just, I was falling apart and didn't know what was wrong. And I think what actually was wrong is I spent this whole year or two writing basically a love letter to my mom. That's what the book is. And um, I'm so, so sorry. And I broke her. I am so, so sorry. No matter how long it can be, the pain is still so real. Yeah. And I thought, you know, my half sibling told me this is what she does. She disappears. Why do you put so much grace? Why are you so kind to her? She disappeared over and over again on us because they're, you know, in their 50s and early 40s. And um, I didn't believe it. I thought. You know, her giving me uh, that ten was a was a, a special circumstance that she was better, and um, and so I, you know, it's it, it was a trigger. I think the book, and I think she needed help, and I tried so hard to get her back to us, and and I just had to stop. I couldn't, I couldn't um, mother my own daughter. You know. Doing that kind of grief anymore. How old's your daughter? She's 11 now. Well, I will tell you this. She has one of the best moms in the entire world. And <laughs> your heart is so pure. And I am so, so proud of you. The fact that where you've come from and where you are today, um, I hope that you look yourself in the mirror tonight and realize that you deserve everything that you've received and you deserve to have such a beautiful daughter that loves you and the entire world to love you. And thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your book. Um, we'll make sure that we definitely spread the love. We want to, we'll put your book on our website and, um, on our podcast. And Dana, if, if anyone wants to hear this podcast, where do, where do they go to? Um, well, they're already listening to it right now, but oh, they are, <laughs> <laughs> but they can, uh, we are on to subscribe. If you just listen on our podcast page, you can go and subscribe on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Deezer and TuneIn. Just look up fostering change and hit that subscribe button and also don't forget to leave us a review because that will really help boost us up uh in those in those podcast apps and by the way i will tell you this is one of my favorite podcasts i mean i could tell you're just so pure and you're so real and i want to thank you for that you know everybody we all have an opportunity to be a part of the change um and we all can do that so i hope everybody has an amazing day and remember let's all be good humans you know take care everyone Thank you, Sasha. Sasha, thank you so much, okay? You were amazing, and I want you to know you were just so real, and I can't wait for you to listen to this podcast, okay? And please do me a big favor. Keep in touch, okay? Okay, thank you, Rob. Thank you, Dana. This was a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. 
Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. And check out the Fostering Change blog at ComfortCases.org. So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob Shear, Instagram at Rob underscore Shear, and on Twitter at Rob Shear 6. And please share this podcast and leave us a review. Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.